back. And we're back. And the third time is the charm. Is it? I think so. I'm not being charmed yet. I'm excited by a lot of things right now. So this is our third attempt at sounding spontaneous, although this third attempt sounds more spontaneous than the first two attempts, so no one will ever know unless we tell them. Oops. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And we had our big date last Wednesday. Yep. Saw Catherine Hardwick. At the Tiff Bell Light Box. It was a very lady event. Yeah, it was like 99.5% women, I'm going to guess. Give or take. We, yeah. we guessed the demographics were similar to the time we saw Magic Mike XXL. Yes, in the recliner theater. Well, not the recliner theater, but the recliner row of the VIP theater. At Young and Dundas. Yes, which is the absolute best. Well... Well, I mean, at the time it was. Now the... Young and Egg is nice. Yeah, isn't that all recliners? Every row's a recliner. Yeah, that's... I mean, but that was then. This is now. Right. So now we got to see Catherine Hardwick at a very lady-focused event. On my way in, I bumped into her, ruined a shot her friend was trying to take, and then creeped up behind her friend and grabbed the same picture. So I think we'll put that up for the podcast image today, or not, depending. Well, I mean, you know. um, We'll see what happens. Yeah. It's a good picture, actually. It's a great picture. And she was lovely. Just walked up to her, shook her hand. Uh, Did notice the attendance and security and all over pomp and circumstance in Michigas for a lady event was a lot less than what it is. And I don't know if that's just the audience or the promotion. Uh, It seemed like this event was sponsored by this uh, director lady guild thing. Collective, yeah. Well, I mean, in truth, even though she, what did she say that she's, uh, well, I'm not sure if Twilight remains the number one grossing movie for a female-directed movie or not, but... Probably. But uh, she's not a recognizable face, whereas Spike Lee is a recognizable face, Keanu is a recognizable face. So, I mean, it's... But isn't that the... I mean, that's the whole thing. She's a woman, therefore, even though she's directed a huge grossing movie that was a first of a franchise, no one knows who she is. So that's kind of odd, but that's the truth. Yeah. And she was amazing, so funny, so entertaining. Yep. Her whole backstory of the what industrial design, or in- yeah, well, she yeah, she went to school for architecture and design, and was a was a set designer. Yeah, production um, designer. Was she a like, production designer? Yeah, I think she was like you know talking about mixing up bits of sand and brick and that abandoned copper mine for uh, Three Kings. Yes. Yeah, so that they could uh, easily accommodate Sir Clooney's schedule as he had to travel back and forth between ER. Yeah, and I, I mean, I didn't really think about it at the time, but uh, they shot that movie in uh, in California, and for all the world, it was, you know, Afghanistan. Um, I didn't even think about location, but whenever there's a movie that's set in a sandy place, I, I always assume that they do what Star Wars did, and they go to Tunisia. Yeah, or Mad Max. Yeah, yeah. 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 Was Mad Max Tunisia? No, that was Namibia. Yeah. But, you know. How did I not know that, considering they had about 20 chances to thank them at the Oscars, and I actually watched it. <laughs> but yeah, like when when people shoot desert set um, things, it's just easier. I think it's easier, strangely enough, logistically and cost wise, to take it to another continent. Um, I guess it's probably prohibitive to try to do something like that in California. But um, yeah, so at the time George Clooney was still on ER. I didn't realize he was that uh, much in the infancy of his film star charisma uh, period when he made that movie. Because when I look back on it, I think of George Clooney as being like the movie star in that picture, but 
he was still on ER. He was probably the bigger star just because that is sort of pre-Netflix, pre-everything else. So the numbers that ER got every week were pretty big. But in terms of, you know, movies made in revenue, Ice Cube probably was the bigger movie star. Because I don't know if Mark Wahlberg was a, would it be? No, so I think all three of them, though, I don't know if... Uh, they were all in sort of weird places that kind of evened out. I mean, th- this was after uh, Fear, but Mark Wahlberg wasn't a movie star then at all, really. He was still considered a rapper who was trying to act. Well, so was Ice Cube, really. Um, and then Spike Jones was a music video director. Not even... I don't think he directed any feature films at that point. Once again, this is like going back to 1999... Um, so my memory kind of fails me, but yeah, they were all sort of in the infancy of whatever they, whatever their careers would become. Um, but yeah, so she was a production designer on 20 films before she directed her own film, um, and it's still kind of amazing that without uh, without any real support, she got that movie made, and she also was a first-time writer and director, along with Nikki Reed, who was a first-time everything. Yeah, she was 13 years old. Yeah. Uh, and she or was thirteen when they, they wrote it? Maybe maybe she was yeah, older maybe when they she actually was a bit shot older. it. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I still think she was fifteen when the movie was yeah. made. Um, she just looked um, more mature, and but that was the whole point was that she was this um, extremely. Uh, I don't want to say promiscuous because it's not about promiscuity, but it's about this precocious. Yeah, um, teenager, uh, and I. I sort of knew about the Nikki Reed connection, but I didn't know how autobiographical it was, and I didn't know the connection between she and Catherine Hardwick and Catherine Hardwick's parents. It's kind of... Uh, sorry, <laughs> Catherine Hardwick's parents. <laughs> the connection between Nikki Reed and her parents and Catherine Hardwick. Um, so Catherine Hardwick was a friend of the family, uh, and she witnessed firsthand a lot of the stuff that ended up in the movie because it's Nikki Reed's story. Um, but the interesting part was that Nikki Reed... Um, by the time the movie was being uh, cast, she was too precocious to play herself. So that's why Evan Rachel Wood played the Nikki Reed role, and Nikki Reed, ro- Nikki Reed played um, the bad girl, which was, I guess, the role that she was born to play. <laughs> it's just, it's really weird. I never knew any of the evolution of that story. Um, makes me want to go back and watch the movie because I have not seen it since it first came out. And even in, and God help me, I watched The Twilights and. I think I've talked Never. about I've talked about this on the podcast before. I went into New Moon having not read the books or seen any of the movies, and New Moon wasn't even the first one, but it was the day after Precious, and I needed to literally brain erase and use young, half-naked men to just rub Precious out of my brain. Like I couldn't sleep, I couldn't think about anything else but Precious. It stuck with me, and just I just said I needed something else to think about and so, uh, half-naked young Tyler Lautner seemed like a good idea because those two movies were in the theater at the same time. So New Moon was not the first Twilight No, movie? no. Twilight oh. was the first one. Oh. So the first one that I saw wasn't even hers. I went back and watched hers after. And how did it compare to, because I, th- I think it was Chris Weitz who um, directed the subsequent ones, I think. I, I liked, and you know what, I did notice the color and stuff, like the sort of the red truck mm-hmm. and like the earthy tones of like Bella and her dad before and then, like, the color scheme and everything else of the cones. I think that uh, she set a really cool palette, uh, pun intended, for the sparkly vampires. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're sparkly vampires, like, let's set all that aside. It was 
very interesting visually. Like you could watch that movie on mute. And there's some movies that you can watch on mute and almost enjoy them, if not more, more in a different way. Like yeah. Fifth Element's one of those movies for yeah. me, where it's just so visual that you don't necessarily need the sound. The sound, I mean, adds a whole other layer for Fifth Element, especially in the scene with the diva. But whatever. Anyway, I saw New Moon. I went back and I watched the other ones or the first one afterwards, and I did appreciate the visual style. I still, you know, struggle with the whole uh, girl's ultimate path to happiness is fundamentally changing herself, but hey, I love The Little Mermaid too, so fuck it. And that's in the source material, so it's like, and quite frankly, that's probably the reason that those movies were made in, in the first place. I'm guessing that Twilight had a very... Yeah, it's, uh, it's really skewing like a young female skewing YA audience. Yeah, um, but the storyline is easy to pitch to a male executive. Hey, yeah. girl changes everything about herself to be with a guy. Sold. Yeah, exactly. And he, uh, and and she did. I'm assuming she gets eternally youthful, so she's going to be hot forever as well. Yeah. But Nikki Reed has a great moment. I forget if it's in the third movie or the fourth. I think it's in the third movie. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna play the the uh, the adult. Who did Nikki Reed play? Uh, she plays Rosalie. She's one of the sparkly vampires. She's the one who is the least into Bella joining the fam. Okay. Because she feels like she didn't have a choice and is not that cool about vampire life because all she really wanted was to be a mother and grow old and, you know, have a normal, you know, ideal life. And so, her character's backstory uh, involves... Uh, Assault, like a gang assault, basically, and she was found in an alley by like the oh. the doctor maker of vampires. And spoiler alert for anybody who's never seen Twilight: if you haven't seen it or read it, <laughs> what she said, yeah. Uh, anyway, so her character has a rough transition, and then uh, in her infancy as a vampire, mm-hmm. she goes on uh, a pretty directed murder spree at the men who attacked her. And her character in the movie gets to recount the story. And it's probably one of my favorite moments in all of the movies because the way she retells the story of her sort of, uh, you know, in the final leg of hunting down and murdering the men who, you know, gang assaulted her and left her for dead. Uh, She just gets this this adorable little half smile. Think sort of uh, Sansa Stark towards the end of this season. I won't spoil that because some of you might not have seen that. But she gets this like adorable half smile, a bit more like of a full half smile. And so three quarters. Yeah, and and she her her line I think is something like I was a bit theatrical back then, and I'm just I'm really amazed when now I hear the backstory of Nikki Reed is. You know, this, you know, precocious youth at risk who got introduced into acting and writing by a family friend who wanted her to have an outlet. Because she's actually a legit good actress, and I really wish I could see her in more things. I want to now look her up and see what else she's been in, because uh, knowing a bit more about her backstory, it makes her definitely more interesting. And it's just that it's how Hollywood wastes the, you know plethora of ingenues that they have to work with they just put them in one bucket and you either surface or you're stuck and instead of letting them be different kinds of actors uh, or a hey it's that guy kind of lady instead it's just you either get to be the Kristen Stewart or you are not yeah it is kind of worrying there do seem to be a certain number of slots and I mean Nikki Reed 
I have only seen her in 13, I think. Uh, and I know she's done, um, you know, she's been working probably fairly consistently since then, but she kind of reminds me of, um, you know, the actress Missy Peregrine? Yeah. Like they yeah. are sort of, they occupy the same space. And sometimes I say, like, we have, if we have a Brooklyn Decker, why do we need a Blake Lively? But um, at least I think there's enough talent in both Missy Peregrine, actually, and, and Nikki Reed, but they just haven't capitalized on it. I mean, it, my go-to now is they should be on television. They should both be on, uh, like, talk to Noah Hawley, talk to somebody who's making really good TV, because I don't think there's room for them in film. There just isn't. Uh, they're not... Um, it's not that they're not attractive. It's just they're, they're not... I mean, there's, I mean, that's a lie. They're obviously both very attractive, but it's not what sells, I think. There's, there may be a, a toughness to Nikki Reed that is hard to turn into something softer, and no one will allow an actress to be hard, unless she's in an action franchise. Um, so, you know, maybe she needs to talk to Marvel, too. I mean, I saw the, the panel for... Uh, for Suicide Squad, and there's like 30 people on the panel, it's like, <laughs> and there are a lot of, actually, I'm surprised, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but there's a, there's a whole bunch of people on that panel who I don't even know, so there are unknown actors and actresses getting um, cast in movies. I'm just excited to see Adam Beach. I know I yeah, might be the only one it. saying that, but I'm I super excited Adam. to see Adam Beach. I love Beach. Adam Beach. Yeah, there's always, there's always a time and a place for Adam Beach. <laughs> there, there is. Yeah, yeah. The world needs more Adam Beach. He's our indigenous, hey, it's that guy. Yes, he is. He's a, you know, once again, he was poised to become a star. Wind talkers, man. Yeah. I mean, he's extremely good looking, um, but... Charismatic. But no one would cast him as anything other than, you know, a Navajo codebreaker or, or something. And I'm sure he was offered lots of terrible things that he may have said no to because... I think he stayed, if not full-time in Canada, enough in Canada that he didn't need to make L.A. money all the time. I think he was on some sort of procedural fairly recently, though, right? He was on Arctic Air as well, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah or North of 40 or one of those. I don't know. One of those CBC shows said in... If you're listening above. from America, yes, we're aware that we may as well have just said <laughs> Timbits maple syrup poutine. Yeah, like it was somewhere that was like north yeah. of the, uh, the... We're really close to the Arctic Circle. I don't know if it was like above or below it in those shows, but... Uh, but yeah, I could have sworn he was on one of the CSIs. I mean, don't quote me because I don't watch them. But on one of the CSIs or one of the NCISs or something with initials. And he was like part of a team, which is like the most bland role you can take as an actor. Um, but, you know, I think the first time I saw him in something was, Dan- was it The Res? Um, which was a- I feel like he was in a, a I think the first time I well, saw Dan's him was a, a Sherman Alexi joint. I feel like he was in a Sherman Alexi joint. You know what? We're going to take a break. Mike crack open another Pilsner and do a little deeper dive on Adam Beach possibly we'll be back and we're back yes and it was indeed a Sherman Alexi joint yeah I was conflating smoke signals with Dance Me Outside and the res Um, I love Dance Me Outside though yeah, I don't really remember what it was. I know I've seen all of them, but I don't know what differentiates. I'm going to say Adam Beach is in two of those three movies, but I, according to IMDb, I think I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was Smoke Signals, but that was like back in the in the late 90s. So he's been around for a really, really long time, but he just hasn't um, become what he should be, which is, you know, I can actually see him, there's sort of parallels between him and uh, Benicio Del Toro. So both these are sort of handsome um, you know, somebody from south of the border, someone from north of the border, uh, which 
in an Adam Beach kind of has the same kind of physicality as uh, as a Benicio del Toro. So I feel like his comedy though is he can more do straight ahead comedy. Which one? Adam Beach. Well, that's. Why don't, did you ever see? Um, oh God! Now I'm going to fumble around endlessly for the name of the movie. Well, meanwhile, let me tell you why I think Adam Beach okay. can do more straight ahead comedy. He has more of a face that lets itself smile, whereas Benicio Del Toro, even when he's amused, it looks like it's hurting him. Like, it looks like he's kind of taking a dump. Like, not in a bad way. He's still handsome, and it's still interesting to watch, but I feel like when Adam Beach smiles, he has one of those faces that, even if you walk past him on the street, you'd want to smile with him. Yeah, I I think um, with uh, Benicio Del Toro, He's he plays straight, but he is funny. He's not trying to be funny. So yeah. in the movie uh, Savages, uh, it was a Blake Lively. I talk about her all the time now, but the Blake Lively, Taylor Kitsch. Um, I know what that movie. Yeah, the, yeah. That, that little hot threesome movie. Um, Benicio del Toro and Selma Hayek play gangsters, um, and they are funny. Like they're really funny, but they are not playing at being funny. He's like some sort of like mob. He's like a cartel guy. Uh, but their stuff is really, really funny. He just can't. I think if he tried to actually be funny and deliver a joke, if someone cast Benicio del Toro in a comedy, I think it would be awful. But I think he's funny when he's being himself because he, there's something really weird about him. Like even Snatch, he was funny. Well, hell, even in his cameo in Gardens of the Galaxy was oh, ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Wasn't he like the collector or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a bit over the top for me, but yeah, he was funny. You know, and that was a really outsized. There was like a. That was literally a cartoonish performance. Yeah. Um, and it lent itself to, I mean, it was more ridiculous than it was funny, but yeah, it's, anyway, all, all of that is to say that I think Adam Beach is easily castable. I just think no one has the imagination or the inclination to to put a First Nations man in a movie because they think it won't make any money. Well, hopefully he'll get a bit of a bump from Suicide Squad, although I'm scared he'll die early after not getting to say very much. Do you know who he I plays? feel like he may get the Olivia Munn treatment. I don't even know who he plays, which is not a good sign. Well, I mean, I don't know because I know I, I nothing from, know. from Guardians of the or from from the Suicide Squad except what I saw in Arrow. Well, especially DC, and I mean, I'm much less first of late in DC for reasons, mostly because I doubled down on Marvel uh, a while back, and then did the whole Marvel Unlimited subscription. And in terms of actual physical comic books, I buy anything that's out of like the straight ahead um, Marvel versus DC uh, genre is more of finishing up the Fables series or Saga or something else like that. So I'm not really buying a lot of DC now. I kind of got really mad during the whole New 52 reboot when they screwed up Catwoman again, even after all the great work that Darwin Cook did, may he rest, putting her in a sensible outfit and letting her zip her shirt up all the way to the top. And they took what he did and like ruined it again. And then when they did the reboot, I mean, in the first, I forget it was the first, no, it was the first Batman, where there's literally a big end panel of her just getting it, I mean, cat style, I guess, if you want to put it in her parlance. And you know what? I'm not even, let's not, let's not talk about anything DC's done to women right now, because except for their TV shows, yay, Supergirl, I really struggle with them right now. I think um, for this part, you can just put in crickets where my vocals would be, because I know nothing about what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just imagine a lot of articles on the Mary Sue. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of lady think pieces. Yeah, I mean, I do watch a lot of um, fantasy, sci-fi, not a lot of comic book properties, but um, I watch them, I don't read them, so um, I don't know um, the story. So once the movie comes out, I can become an expert on the movie, but I have no inclination to figure out. I have a friend that's 
every time there's any kind of comic book adaptation, it's, oh, well, and the comic book, and then and I'm like, I don't care. I yeah. Just, I just want, I want to see the movie. I don't care who, like, if this is, like, the third guy who is, like, it's Peter Parker or Miles Morales, like, I don't care how many there have been. If they make a movie, I'm okay with them choosing whatever incarnation of a superhero they they want to. That's how I feel about Bond, though. When people get all fussed about them changing Bond, or even when he was blonde, let's not even get yeah. into the whole maybe interest of it all. I'm like, whatever. It's just like a guy who drives nice cars and bangs a lot of strangers. I mean, and there's absolutely zero continuity in James Bond movies, except, I mean, they, Sam Mendes attempted it, but the whole thing about Bond is that they're essentially standalone action movies, and he is not a character that has any really... He doesn't have a character arc. I mean, from... I think the only thing that James Bond has to do is be James Bond throughout the length of the movie. Yeah, at some point, wear a couple awesome suits. Yeah. Which is my biggest problem with the last one, was all the, like, the outdoorsy nonsense. Oh, so I didn't see the last one, but I mean, God, he must have worn at least one Tom Ford suit. But uh, what was it, the one after Quantum of Solace? Um, uh, The good one, uh, Skyfall. Yeah. Like when... Uh, he was on the top of that train wearing that Tom Ford suit and he oh. stopped to readjust the suit. Yes. Like just to straighten out the collar. Absolutely. I mean, God, his, his thighs were threatening to burst right out of the seams of that thing. It was like, yeah, I mean, I am not a Daniel Craig uh, huge fan, but he is perfect as Bond. Because he's, he's sort of surly in real life, um, but that sort of surliness works really well as Bond. And he can lighten it up a bit. He has a bit of a twinkle in his eye. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, you believe that he can kick the shit out of somebody, uh, whereas Tom, I mean, I hope he has effectively ruined his chances of becoming Bond, but Tom Hiddleston doesn't have the physicality, and he's too, he's too, it's not only that he's too slight physically. It's is he, he too much of a dandy? Yes, he is too much of a dandy. Do you think Taylor Swift ruined it for him? No, um, I saw The Night Manager, did not like The Night Manager, thought uh, that any attempts for him to so there are some teams where he's in you know in physical combat and they are unbelievable he looks he's too tall he's too lanky he doesn't have the physicality he um, has a model's body absolutely and even in terms of you know the spy craft in the night manager first of all the story the story is terrible because he just sort of you know falls ass backwards into intelligence and he gets embedded with somebody who's this you know super secret um, guy who's a weapons dealer but you know uh, Tom Hiddleston falls at his feet one day and he brings him into his camp. So the whole, I mean, without going off uh, on a whole side story about how stupid the night manager is, Tom Hiddleston is not, to me, believable as a James Bond. You might be able to sell him as a as somebody who's in covert ops, but not James Bond, because James Bond is a man of action, and Tom Hiddleston, no matter what you do... Like, think about Loki. L- Loki very rarely engages in physical combat, and if he does... Doesn't he just use his fingers or something? Like it's you know what I mean. Like or he'll like sink up behind someone and stab him through the chest. Yeah, but he's not actually grappling physically with somebody, and it just it doesn't work. Um, but a fastbender, sure. And actually, a fastbender is really ooh, kind of, fastbender would be great. And he's in the mold of a Daniel Craig. And I've always thought that uh, that uh, fastbender and uh, Daniel, um, not Daniel Craig, and uh, Tom Hiddleston actually look like each other physically, like they could be brothers. Um, but yeah, I would totally be down with a. I mean, we've talked about it a million times, but Magneto Nazi hunter. No, that's just yeah, me. like uh, but no, like a, a uh, Idris. Uh, actually, Gillian Anderson has expressed her interest, which would be very cool. But that's never going to happen. So let's as be Bond, clear. yeah, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. Um, or uh, but if you know of the people who've been tossed around, I would go with Idris uh, or 
uh, or Fassbender, and everyone else would be a distant second. So Fassbender is the one that they have on deck for the TIFF soiree this year. Yes. Which is their high-priced event that they do, I guess, to kick off the festival. And $300 for balcony seats. Suck yeah, more money out of you? Yeah. I, I guess last year, was it Natalie Portman? I don't recall. I don't know. This is just another one of those things that if I got a free ticket, I'd surely go. But well, Of course. I don't know. I love Michael Fassbender, but I don't know if I would spend $300 to sit like 100 feet away from him and never get to talk to him. No, I mean, I think your best bet is if you really want to, put all your efforts into getting tickets to uh, a first screening of his movie and there'll be a Q&A. I don't see how this experience is going to be any... Well, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's not going to be better, but if you want access to, to Michael Fassbender talking, I'd much rather see it um, behind a movie and not behind some ridiculously overpriced TIFF money grab that has, you know, like... I think they're, they're selling corporate uh, sponsorships at... Some ridiculous price, like thirty-five thousand um, dollars. It gets crazy. It's the people who want to go to that only want to see movie stars. Yeah, absolutely. Which is the funny thing too, because I mean, I always have these conversations with people, like people who I think are stars. So to me, a, a Jessica Chastain, a Tom Hiddleston, uh, an Idris Elba, uh, a, a Fassbender. To me, these are huge stars. To the majority of the public, they are not. Most people don't know who they are, like for real. I had a friend who's... Uh, oh, I feel like black ladies know who Idris Elba is. Yeah, but I'm talking like universally. Like, right, 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 like, right. Say somebody like a Julia Roberts or a George Clooney. Like, let's say my mother. My mother knows who those are. She wouldn't have a clue as to who Michael Fassbender is. Like, I would be shocked if she did, even though he's been so much a part of my um, film consumption diet for the last, you know, 10 years. Um, but there's, you know, he hasn't really been in a big hit except for um, the ex men movies and he's I don't think people associate him with the movie it's all I think the X-Men for largely are interchangeable as long as it's it's a franchise it's not the people who are in it so I just saw a teaser trailer today for something that I don't know if it will be at the festival but I kind of hope it will be and I think based on the director and origin story there's an outside chance even though it may be a bit uh, commercial as it's a sequel uh, T2 and by the T I mean yes. train spotting yes yeah I was so happy to see that. Even though, even if that ends up being the best thing in the movie, that teaser of you know the train going by and the four of them standing there, it just looks so good. Yep. It, it brought back so many good feelings. Yeah, I haven't actually seen the, the teaser, but I saw a still from it. It's uh, just 40 seconds, basically. If you've uh, seen the still, you've seen I've the seen teaser. It? It's just like the train is going by, train's going by, then the train goes, and then you see them, and then it like blocks in the orange over each one of the characters. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, we live in a world where we have sequels that no one asked for, but strangely, I think... No one asked for this, but God, do I want yeah, it? Yeah, but that's the thing. I didn't know I wanted it until I knew it was coming, um, like a train. Um, but yeah, I'm really ex- excited. I loved train spotting. Um, and I remember when I first saw it, I think I must have, well, obviously I saw it in the theater, but it wasn't, um, there was no closed captioning. So I didn't understand any of it. And then when it came out on video, the, the video version of it had, uh, had uh, closed captioning, or subtitles rather. So I could finally figure out what the hell they were talking about because I had no idea. And those, thought of, those Scottish brogues are so thick. Like, I, like um, Robert Carlyle played Begbie. It was exactly like uh, Benicio Del Toro in, uh, in The Usual Suspects or Bad Pitt in Snatch. I didn't understand anything he said. I just knew that it was threatening. 
and that was enough. It was almost like, you know, listening to someone in a foreign language, but you knew what he was saying even though you didn't understand the words he was saying? I found it almost easier to understand the movie than read the book. Well, but is, I read the book. Is, it, is, it, is the book uh, written in dialogue to, or yeah. dialect, I guess? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's thicker depending on which character it is uh, as well. Interesting. Uh, and I was on a big Irvine Welsh tip in uh, university. And I had that book. I had Exodus and another one. I lent them to a boy I had a crush on. And it turned out that he liked other boys. So, you know, that happened. But whatever. Did, did Enough about me. No. Yeah. Uh, I really, I don't know if I didn't have as much trouble understanding because I'd read the books or because I think just in general, when you're an English major, you spend time dealing with English dialects and English language. So between Shakespeare and having to like read Chaucer in like the original English aloud in front of class, Mm. I had uh, a bit more of an ear for that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't find it as hard to understand. I really just, you know... It was the music. I would get distracted by the soundtrack because it was so good. So when I would watch it afterwards on, I think, VHS, because it was that long ago, I think I probably had a copy of it on VHS, I would have to rewind because I would get distracted by the music. Wait, you would get... But hold on. I know, I know. There's words over it, but I would like start to get into like the music underneath the talking. (laughs) You mean like the background? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, well, I, actually, I have to, uh, in anticipation of this, I'm going to have to rewatch Trainspotting because I've not seen it in years, but I just remember having this profound love for it. Um, I was younger then, although obviously all, we all? all of us were because it was a, lo- a long time ago. So was Danny Boyle. I really like his take on this world will be very interesting. Yeah, I can't say that I love Danny Boyle's more recent work, um, but I mean, I love Shallow Grave. I love Trainspotting. He was one of these really energetic new voices. Um, I mean, you didn't love Some Dog. No, I hated Some Dog, but that's you know that's right up there with me hating. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's probably still IMDb's number one favorite movie, Shawshank. Garbage. So yeah, I have some unpopular opinions, but no, I did not like Some Dog at all. Um, I hated the framing device. It wasn't even a framing device, but just the the whole um, game show thing. Yes, the whole uh, Indian Idol of it all was dumb and it's going to make the movie really really dated because they've chosen something so if they strip that away and just told the story in like a linear sort of this is the story of this kid's life without the game show thing no still no i didn't like the movie i didn't like the performances um even the children the children were good yeah they're okay i mean they were fine i i mean they're no jacob trombley or anything no no i just uh the movie failed to engage me on any level it was, um, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes No, I'm not it. trying to make you like it. I understand no, no, no. that you don't. No, I'm, no, just... I'm, just, I'm just trying to explain my complex relationship to it. And I wouldn't call it necessarily torture porn, but this sort of, this, it's, you know, it's life in a Mumbai slum. And I think a lot of cliches were played into. Um, I think it's part of, you know, I still haven't seen 12 Years a Slave, which I say yeah, all the time. Yeah. But I just decide not to subject myself to things where I know... For whatever reason, part of my brain's just not ready for that right now. Yeah, and I would, you know, think about the joy that a movie like Monsoon Wedding brought. That's a movie, <laughs> just like the monsoons bring the rain. Monsoon Wedding brought joy to me, but it's I like watching um, shows about different cultures that don't steer into stereotypes. And I just found that Slumdog Millionaire did exactly that. 
Um, Angry Indian Goddesses you might like, even though it has a rough third act. Uh, I think Don't we all? <laughs> Angry Indian Goddesses is... it's. It was runner-up for People's Choice. It definitely could have won, I think, if, you know, now it doesn't skew towards the bigger movie so much. But definitely that movie has, you know, some of the rough life of that culture, but it doesn't, to your point, it doesn't go straight on uh, torture porn, like, life is horrible, life is horrible. Like, look at these cute little orphans. This one is covered in excrement. Like, I'm just, I don't really like it. And and especially, you know, especially, you know, it's made by a film, it's made by a British film director, so you have all of these, sort of this whole post-colonial thing about a British person going back to India and making a movie about how squalid India is, so there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't sit well with me. And we're going to take a break. So, I wasn't trying to make you like Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, I was more, uh, I saw that trailer as I emerged from the K-hole of watching panels and trailers that came out of Comic-Con this weekend. Uh, that's, you know, Adam Beach. I avoided the Suicide Squad panel, actually, because it's coming out soon enough that I didn't mm-hmm. want to be spoiled. So you live stream these panels? You can just watch them on YouTube. Some people okay. record them illegally. Some people record them. It appears to be somewhat legally, depending on, yeah. like, what their affiliation is. Uh, as usual, uh, the Marvel panel had Chris Hardwick. I didn't watch Oof. any of that yet. I, I hate him. All right. I'm just going to say... I get that there's a lot of... He's almost getting kind of a Seacrest-esque kind of backlash because yes. he has yes, that's exactly it. gotten every job related yes. to nerd stuff. Yeah. And because he did so much work for so many years, sort of putting in the groundwork on things that people didn't watch or didn't love mm-hmm. and so much of his own time into, you know, Nerdist and everything else, I'm not that mad at him. What I struggled with, I think it was last week, was... Um, during the whole Leslie Jones Ghostbusters of it all, I did yeah. not see any uh, Nerdist tweet Support? about that. And maybe they did. Maybe mm-hmm. I missed it. But it was like not even a full week before that Seth Meyers did the uh, live watch with uh, Leslie Jones of Game of Thrones. It's the funniest uh, thing I've ever awesome. seen. Yeah. And it was, it was, I think, a Nerdist uh, co-pro, or mm-hmm. at least, like, they, you know, promote a lot. So it's not like they have no awareness of her as a person or that, you know, her brand of comedy or what she's like. So the fact that they were, like, pumping that just the week before, but then when everything blew up with her, they couldn't even, you know, put out, if not even a against the Trolls tweet, but, like, a pro-LJ tweet. Right. I struggle with that because his... Uh, he has a lot of bandwidth. Yeah, he's an incredible amount of power. And uh, that's something that his audience perhaps could benefit from hearing is the occasional support of the others. Actually, when I saw the sort of group photo for the Marvel panel, and there were a lot of people of color there. There was like Lupita and Ryan yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just wondering, is this like the most black people he's ever been around? Probably. Because well, even though yeah. it was just like, yeah. you know, 15% of the panel, it just reminded me of how much the whole Nerdist Network is just very um, non-diverse. And even, you know, there was some low-key passive-aggressive shade against Olivia Munn when she sort of emerged from that G4 world. Mm-hmm. And for anybody else, or if it had been one of them yeah. reaching those heights and, like, getting to dress up in the spandex and whatever, you would have... They would be constantly pumped, constantly on their stuff. Yeah. 
she did not get that same level of sort of collegial, you know, at a girls. Yeah, absolutely. And my thing about Chris Hardwick is that um, he's non-critical in both senses because he. I mean, this is a problem when you have somebody who's paid by um, by AMC to host an AMC after show. You, I mean, I, specifically when it comes to um, to The Walking Dead, a show that has many many problems. If you watch a Chris Hardwick after show, he doesn't ask critical questions about the creators or of the cast. It's only like pump, pump, pump. He only pumps up the show, which um, kind of angers me because I listen to a lot of podcasts and most podcasts that are about a show are willing to take it on because people are fans, so they feel some sense of ownership. So um, as a fan, I mean, I'm not a fan of The Walking Dead anymore, but um, as a fan of any show, when they make a mistake, when they fuck up, I actually... Like, I think that's worthy of discussion because the show can be better. Um, so I don't know why anybody, except, you know, if you want to see Daryl or, you know, or Carl on the, on the after show, I don't know that there's any, like, there's no value to me to his after shows. It's, it's, it really is just part of the uh, advertising machine, and I don't know that that's clear to a lot of people who watch it. Um, and it's just, you know, it's like when these corporate synergies are aligned, you lose uh, the ability to actually criticize what you're supposed to be criticizing or critiquing. That's my problem with Chris Hardwick is that he's just, he's in the pocket of, you know, of uh, of big AMC basically. Yes, or in the pockets of big nerd or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and he has, uh, and for him, he needs that synergistic relationship because nerdist relies on content and access, right? So he can't. Maybe he feels like he can't be critical. Which but is even if you're in the pocket of Big Nerd, you could still have like tweeted something in support of Leslie Jones when all that shit was Absolutely. going down. Like that one has nothing to do with the other. I just I still struggle with that whole. It, it's sort of tacit broness. Yeah. I don't know. Well, no, it is. I mean, I think you're right about Elizabeth Munn. Elizabeth uh, Olivia Munn. I think she was, you know, the hot girl who was. I mean, and, and don't nerds love a hot girl who says that she's a nerd? So, I think she is supposed to occupy that same spot. That's like the, you know, the hot girl who drinks pizza and drinks beer and still has that body. Yeah. That is what she was supposed to be, and she wasn't one of. She to have aspirations to be an actor. As long as she stayed in her lane and yeah. dressed up in Wonder Woman costumes yeah. with them and went to Comic-Con, it was fine. Exactly. But uh, when she ascended and started doing, you know, say what you will about Aaron Sorkin and the newsroom and everything else, that dialogue is, like, no joke. Yeah. Like, that alone, that she could get through some of those, you know, segments on that fake news show. And I think, what did they have her speaking Japanese at some point as well? It was ridiculous. Uh, once again, going on the record, never watched one minute of yeah. The West Wing, never watched one minute of uh, uh, whatever. What's the name of the show? I said I've forgotten so quickly. Newsroom. Newsroom. Ugh. Newsroom. <laughs> never watched one minute of Sports Night. Um, not a not yeah. working fan. But I like the social network. Yeah. But yeah. I, Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't like to, I don't like Sorkin speaking, walk and talks. But she was able to do it, and that alone, I think, should at least give her an atta girl. And I just, I feel like it's so begrudging whenever they do mention her. Yeah. She exists, and they have to acknowledge it. Yeah. But they don't want to. It's like, you know, it's like you dated somebody in high school, and they become really popular, so you can't, not become really popular, but they marry somebody who's way better than you, but then you have to pretend that you're happy for them, even though you're not. So you just try not to talk to, to talk about them at all. But yeah. when somebody says, oh, how's Olivia? Oh, no, she's doing really, really well. But no details. Yeah, absolutely. 
It's rough. But yeah, so was watching a bunch of trailers uh, as usual. And I think the best word I've come up with is sort of the desaturation of color uh, that is available in the DC film universe. This sort of gray haze applied to everything, including the range of human emotions and the color palette. I, I find you the casting it choices. interesting, and that too. Mm-hmm. But you know, that was uh, the Justice League trailer was slightly okay with the sort of Affleck trying to assemble a team because he is a Batman, B Affleck, and C. It's kind of like the opposite of what a Tony Stark or Captain America recruiting montage is like. But that trailer even suffers from the fact that Civil War just happened. So we just yeah. had two much more entertaining versions of yes. that. Well, let's assemble a team. Uh, the other DC stuff, Wonder Woman, uh, it's an interesting role reversal in that. They're clearly going back to some sort of war, either one or two. I think it's uh, World War Two. And it's in the 40s. It looks like Chris Pine is in the Peggy Carter role and Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman is in the Captain America role. So that's the only thing that interests me because I think Chris Pine makes a beautiful Peggy Carter. Oh, he does, yeah. Um, I'm interested in Wonder Woman just because it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's time. Because I mean, it's, it's, it's well past time. Yeah, well, I mean, it was time back in 1976 on TV. This isn't new. And it was time um, it, probably the first three times that uh, Joss Whedon wanted to do it. When he wanted to do it with Miracle Larry, the, did you ever watch Dollhouse? Was, uh, yeah, she the was, first, first few episodes. She was the sort of mild-mannered next-door neighbor to the Tamil Paniket character right. who didn't know that she was a doll. Again, spoilers for Dollhouse, everyone. <laughs> it's in the um, title. Yeah, and she would have been a really interesting Wonder Woman. I mean, think about it. You know, there's this debate now about how a you know a female-fronted action franchise or a female-fronted comedy franchise or a female-fronted uh, com- comic uh, franchise cannot work. Whereas if you were watching TV in the late 70s, you had Wonder Woman, you had the Bionic Woman, you had Charlie's Angels. All of these were top-rated television shows that had as many uh, little boys watching as little girls watching. Three's Company, even. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah like it, it's uh, mod. I mean, uh, One Day at a Time, which are which for some strange reason they are remaking. And Norman Lear is still alive, God bless him. So, um, But the whole thing about One Day at a Time is that I'm really getting into the weeds now, but One Day at a Time was about a divorced woman and her two teenage daughters. So culturally, it was groundbreaking, just like Maude was, just like All in the Family was, just like the Jeffersons were. I don't know that the story of a divorced woman with two teenage daughters now is remarkable, unless like, there has to be some otherness to this family, because otherwise it's like there's nothing culturally relevant. It's like literally 40 years too late. Um, but yeah, so you know, a lot of I feel like if Chuck Larry was or Lori, whatever, yeah, was yeah. making that show, yeah, like, yeah, one like of the daughters would be trans and it would be two and a half women. <laughs> God. <laughs> and it uh, would be the worst thing ever. Yeah, uh, yeah. There'd be lots of jokes about T levels and bullshit. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so like. The fact that people could hide behind it's not time when it was time, you know, hop in your time machine, go back 40 years ago, it was time. And for some reason in the 90s, this ceased to be the case. Um, and then you had like these sort of hyper masculine um, n- narratives. And now there's no room for women except as sidekicks and girlfriends and wives. And my least favorite trope is the wife or girlfriend who doesn't even know what the side gig of the dude is. Um, so it's not even that women aren't 
uh, the people who are who are um, the leads is like they're often willfully cut right out of the narrative. So you don't give them any agency, and they're kept in the dark. And you know, the hero spends most of his time trying to shield his loved ones from his true identity. So I find it all really irritating. I think that's why I like Mr. And Mrs. Smith so much. Yes, equals in every way. Except she was a slightly better murderer. Yeah, but I mean, they were, you know, when you have a, um, and, and that's why, you know, I like shows like, like Buffy where you can have, I mean, you have to sort of like, um, you know, take a step back and think that 98-pound Sarah Michelle Gellar can whoop a big ass. But, you know, she's, she's the chosen one. Uh, so she's, she's super-powered because she is the slayer, right? So, um, but yeah, like, uh, when you have a, a woman and a man go toe-to-toe, it, like, it works. Like, and there is, it's, once again, it's happened so often that we know that these stories can be told. I don't know why men are so afraid of telling these stories. Big gap. Yeah, no, you're right. I don't know why. It's tough. Uh, from uh, what was talked about at Comic-Con and the trailers I watched, there weren't a lot. Uh, there was the big announcement about Brie Larson Yay. being Captain Marvel. I feel okay with it. I mean, it's still Marvel, so yeah. I'd be more worried if it was a big DC, DC character. Yeah. yeah. I think she'll be all right. I think she'll still be able to have a career. I mean, if we look at even Chris Evans, who would a pre-Captain America Chris Evans get to make a Snowpiercer? Well, no, because a pre-Chris, a pre... Ugh, a, Captain America yeah, Chris Evans? That's the one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, Johnny... Wasn't he Johnny... Johnny uh, Storm. Johnny Storm. Yeah. But, uh, and I remember him seeing, him seeing him in Cellular, but he was just sort of a, he was a generically handsome, you know, and this is for the rise of the Chris's, so he didn't even have, you know, all of the Marvel Chris's around him. Um, but yeah, he was, just, he was kind of like a male version of a Brooklyn Decker to me. Yeah. I still think this helps her reach, too, because while we've seen Room, yes. and people who vote for the Academy pretended to have seen Room, there <laughs> isn't necessarily a next step for her that will sort of gradually get her there without going some of the less interesting groups of a uh, you know, series of rom-coms and then she can circle back and yes. pull a Witherspoon or whatever. It'll take her a long time to get to that level of reach versus just being Captain Marvel and then perhaps still doing uh, some interesting side products in her spare time. And the great and terrible thing about any of the female characters or even uh, Black Panther in the Marvel Universe is they aren't necessarily going to get tapped to be in every single other person's movie. So they'll have free time in between yeah. these pictures. I mean, and I, the thing about Brie Larson is I think she has not even though she's not uh, a hugely well-known actor, she's one of these people who has this really um, fervent fan bases. So, you know, people who love her from... Um, even just her couple of appearances on Community. Or in Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, or in Scott Pilgrim. Uh, so she has all kinds of people who like her, so hopefully it's a vocal enough fan base that um, they will pump her up. And I think Room did a huge amount for her career. There's also Skull Island, which is coming out. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of dubious about this. So it's like the, um, it is a King Kong remake. Yeah, um, no, not interested. But it's starring Tom Hiddleston, and I'm really... I'm really interested to challenge my feelings for him. I'm actually more interested in the King Arthur joint with uh, Charlie Hunnam. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Because uh, it's Guy Ritchie. Yeah, but I feel like he's be... had enough time since he's been with the talent succubus that is Madonna that he might have gotten some of his mojo back. Perhaps. I mean, I watched um, three quarters of The Man from Uncle. Uh, not a bad movie. It just seemed overly long. Um, 
but I have a feeling like to me this smells like a night's tale like it's you know going back to the same you know medieval and what's wrong with a night's tale it's one of my favorite Shannon Sossaman flicks well you can name me another <laughs> if you can <laughs> uh, 40 days and 40 nights oh with a uh, with a um, Josh Hartnett Josh Hartnett okay yes fair enough I can't name another but uh, that's actually I'm really surprised I pulled that that's out that's what I pulled yeah. after being at the beer festival this weekend uh, I, I'm actually surprised I remember my name mm. so we're drinking a couple of pilsners tonight we went late uh, because after we've both been drinking all weekend after the beer festival uh, and you being up in the woods over the weekend doing what Canadians do in the woods, which is drink, uh, I had some challenges this year. The guest area at the beer festival was Sweden, and I tried a couple of really nice beers. Uh, one that I picked because of the name, but it actually I think was my favorite of the day. It was uh, called Nebuchadnezzar, oh. and I picked it. I know that name comes from somewhere else, some, but I remember from the Matrix. Yeah, from the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I think he was a king. Yeah, but I remember it as the name of one of the ships one in the, the ships, Matrix. Yeah. Uh, uh, brewery is Omnipolo, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong because it's I'm not Swedish. Omnipoli? It was an IPA, but it wasn't at all super hoppy, and it was 8.5 percent, and it was uh, freaking 8.5 percent, and it was it was light and clear is and delicious. Legal? It. Is oh at the beer festival because they're only giving you a couple ounces and those little taster glasses. Delish. And the other one I liked, same brewery called Olympus Mons, uh, and it was at eight percent. And I actually didn't like that one as much, but I feel like I've had them in a different order. I would have liked the first one more, but right. I definitely would have still liked uh, the Nebuchadnezzar. So once again, the Toronto Beer Festival uh, brought some great treats. Uh, another brewery that I hadn't heard of, High Park Brewery. I tried their Off the Leash IPA, Yum-O, as well as, I can't remember, oh, Across the Pond English uh, Special Ale. And both of those were great, great for drinking in like the bright sunshine. Uh, Sawdust City, I had their Gateway Kolsch. Overall, a uh, great day of great beers in the sun. Uh, saw the Saturday band, which was Big Sugar, I didn't realize that that is a band that's mostly Caucasian people doing mostly reggae <laughs> in a post-Jesse Williams world, uh, watching that kind of blatant, uh, ironic, unashamed okay. cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. It's a bit weird. And uh, the, the Caucasians I were with, they, they felt uncomfortable just watching me stand there perfectly still watching Big Sugar with my head cocked to the side with sort of a, huh, look on my face. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've heard of Big Sugar. Yeah. Yeah, I've obviously never heard them, but I had no idea that they were reggae. I, I don't know if their early albums were, but then I think younger me loves some UB40. So you know yeah, what? I mean, yeah, you know uh, the beat. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mirror in the Bathroom, like straight up reggae songs. Yeah. But, you know, you had Rankin Roger, so there was some bona fides in the band. But yeah, uh, but, but, I feel but like Dave Wakeling could sing a reggae tune. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, that was a bit weird. But I was drunk enough to just be happy about just go with it. Being at the beer festival. So, did you have any special beers in the woods? Uh, uh, does it, if a beer shits in the woods? Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, no, uh, well, actually, I uh, drank some Georgian Bay Gin Smash, which is my drink of the summer. This is a it's a gin-based drink made by Georgian Bay. Um, it's, I think actually, I think it's Georgian Bay Vodka Company, but they make vodka and gin. Um, their gin in the bottle is too much juniper for me. It tastes like you're drinking pine cones, but they have crafted this. It's it's a non-sweet. Um, 
cocktail. It's like gin and citrus and sparkling water, and it is amazing. Um, so I spent a lot of time. I wasn't actually in the woods. I was on a lake. There were some trees, but mostly shrubbery, I guess. Um, so I spent a lot of time on the boat. Even when the boat was at the dock, we would just sit on the boat and bob around and read, um, which led my host to having vertigo. Every time he got off the boat, he had to grab for the walls because he could still feel that he was on a boat. Um, but uh, And then uh, it was just corona, because corona's easy. Um, and then some rum and wines, both red and white, and some sangria. Oh. Yeah. I, yeah. Have, I have a great recipe, actually, for sangria. It's like a, it's easy summer sangria. Uh, it is dead easy. It's because uh, I've always struggled with making red sangria because it always tastes, I don't know, there's something with a combination of fruit and red wine that makes me think of vomit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, like it, it's like it, that taste I've tasted in my mouth, but on the way up, not on the way down. Um, but it's actually just a bottle of, you know, fruity, cheap red wine, and uh, you cut up some fruit, you know, your, your citrus fruit, throw in some berries to make it look like you've made an effort. But the, uh, the killer ingredient is San Pellegrino blood orange uh, soda. And it, you can throw in a little bit of orange juice, too, if you want, but it makes a killer sangria, and it's so easy. You don't have to worry about, oh, uh, I have to put in rum, or there's too much of this, there's not enough of that, because I find it really hard to get the balance right in, uh, in a normal sangria. So, yeah, I made a couple of pictures of that, and, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it was a good weekend, but I... That sounds delicious. You know, I say I, this all the time, but I don't know why I keep doing this to myself, but I keep doing this to myself. Yeah. Well, I feel like after listening to you talk about doing it to yourself, I want to go do it to myself, too. So <laughs> we're going to... <laughs> do it to ourselves. Go do it to ourselves. And thanks again. Hopefully you get to hear this episode. And next week we'll be back on to Next Steps for the Festival and the wonderful website. And clean and sober. <laughs> you... Or dirty and drunk. There you go. Yeah. That's better. Yeah. Sitting in our own filth. <laughs> All right. Talk to you next week. Later. <laughs>